All official work of a pastor, be it done ever so well, will not earn him the respect of his congregation if a truly spiritual conduct is lacking. Thank God that in the consciousness of our people, teaching and life are still so inseparably connected that they desire to see a living sermon in the example of the pastor. That should be a real incentive for a pastor to lead a worthy life. The requirement of the people is for him to be an echo of his own sermon and a proof that he did not preach it in vain. In this demand, the preacher, who rarely knows how to preach for himself, also has something of a sermon, for which he ought to thank God. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us for this episode, the Reverend David Apple. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing well, guys. Good to be back with you. How's the weather down in Paducah? Have you flooded out? We, we're actually drying out now. Everything's in full bloom. The azaleas are blooming. The dogwoods are blooming. Everything's colorful. It's great. Very good. Good to hear. Nice white pill to kick things off. Zellin, how about things up your way? Well, we have to bring in the black pill, right? Scandinavian types, you know. <laughs> it's actually been raining for several days up here, and <laughs> the, the grass is actually starting to come out. So it's beginning to green up, but it's still kind of in that intermediate period between the end of winter and spring actually coming in. So not nearly as colorful as what David is seeing, but generally pretty nice weather, actually. Here in central Illinois, where the German farmers knew good land when they saw it, actually quite nice here. They're just waiting for a couple more weeks of spring, you know, make sure they're safe from that last thaw before the farmers can begin to put in their crops. So it's it's kind of nice. I think spring might actually be here. Although we did just get sleet like two days ago. So what do I know? <laughs> Well, I'm hoping that my rhubarb will actually come in this year. I planted some last year and still waiting for it to come up. So that kind of anticipation of getting into the garden is kind of killing me right now. But Is, the, is the missus going to make a nice pie or perhaps you going to make a nice pie from the rhubarb? We usually make rhubarb bars. Wouldn't be a Lutheran potluck without bars. True story. <laughs> and I am a Lutheran by birth, so there you go. <laughs> Ethnic Lutheran, as it were. <laughs> <laughs> it is a thing, folks. And you've got two of them here. Well, not live, but two of them here recording. I'm actually yes, right. the foreign interloper here. So yes. what can you do? Yeah. You do not belong with us. <laughs> there is no native Scottish Lutheran, insofar as I know. It's not in our temperament. But we, assi- we, ass- we assimilate well, and the Lord, the Lord brings us in. I know we're supposed to say that you're Lutheran by doctrine only, but life experience in, in the church has determined that is a lie. so i represent the german lutherans and we are i guess we are united with the scandinavian zelwin in our love of rhubarb is that a scottish thing willie well we do have rhubarb in the appalachian mountains we we like anything that's hardy and perennial so okay hey at a certain point if if it grows and you can cook it you'll eat it my people would eat it yeah exactly Exactly. So if it moves, you could probably still eat it. So exactly. Well, if you can shoot it even better. Flavor's bad. Just put some molasses in it. You'll be fine. A little sorghum. Never hurt anything. We were better men back then, you know, pioneer days. But speaking of pioneer days, Wilhelm Leia is the pastor. That's what we've gathered here to discuss. We're still working through his pastoral theology. We will link to that in the show description. We've moved on to a section that we've actually talked about when we discussed Gerberding and when we discussed Walther's pastoral theology, namely the conduct of the pastor. 
Now, this is something that again and again we come back to as we study these pastoral theologies, simply because it's a pretty big part of pastoral theology. Now, let's take a step back, kind of retread where we've already been. Why even talk about the conduct of the pastor? Probably been a good, it's been over a month, I think, since our last Leia episode aired, if people are listening regularly. What we talked about last time was his advice for how a pastor should start out in the office. And so it's a natural progression then, okay, once you once you get started, then what does the life of the pastor look like in the years that follow that initial kind of entrance into a, into a congregation? I think you could also point out from the Bible, the qualifications that Paul lays out makes this question a very live one, because being a pastor is not a matter of right, but a matter of living a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. In fact, a very high calling at that. A pastor, quote James, is held up to a higher standard, and so his conduct is something that is highly important. Sure, there there are those who would claim that that's not the case, kind of using the sinful nature as an excuse to gloss over these verses. Because we, we don't want to necessarily put ourselves up, we absolutely, excuse me, don't want to put ourselves up on a pedestal, but we bristle in general about putting men up on a pedestal for a couple reasons. One, we sincerely are sinners, and you will be disappointed ultimately if you only put your trust in men. And two, I believe that a desire to ignore these verses, which speak of the qualifications for the pastor, speaks against the consciences of many men, perhaps in the office or perhaps seeking the office. We need to address those things. You know, what What does it mean to be a, of good reputation and, and those sorts of things? And that's why Leah has this discussion. Can you cultivate a good reputation? Do you, what, How do you gentlemen feel about that? Well, I think it's it's helpful just to see the difference here between, if I remember right, the Gerberdine section on the conduct of the pastor was really thinking more about whether a man is actually qualified to be in the office. And that's what you have in the pastoral epistles, too is the qualifications that are then assumed to be put into practice throughout a man's ministry, which is really what Leah, he's not talking about, here's what a a man should look, here's what his life should look like before he becomes a pastor. I think he just assumes that, you know. And and then then it becomes, this is how you should so order your life. There is truth to this, that the pastor's life is a fishbowl. And it's kind of a cliche that we use, and that's simply to say that everybody's eye is on the pastor and his family. And it's used in the negative, perhaps judging him or or whatever. Nevertheless, it is true that the congregation does look to the pastor for guidance as an example, and oftentimes in sinful judgment. Welcome to the fallen world. A pastor's reputation, as Leah points out, is very important. And a man who seeks the, excuse me, a man who occupies the office opens himself up to slander. Is that not what Leah tells us? Yeah, right. And that's, and that's very true, right? So the, there's kind of a twofold importance for the pastor's conduct. One is for himself, right? To have a clear conscience becomes incredibly important when you're being slandered or or criticized unfairly, you know, in in various ways by the opinions of people around you. It would, I mean, it would it would really be 
paralyzing if you didn't have a clear conscience as a pastor, don't you think? If if you were always subject to the the criticisms and the the slanders, the gossip, the hidden things <laughs> that people will assume about you, not just in your congregation, but but people outside the congregation too. So to have a clear conscience becomes really, in the way Leah discusses it, a necessary condition for the pastor to actually go forward. That's the language of First Peter, though, isn't it? I mean, because it's no virtue to suffer as one who does evil, but it is a virtue to suffer as one who is not guilty of actually doing of any of these things, that to be a Christian and to suffer as a Christian is a godly thing. But we have to make sure that we are actually suffering as Christians and not actually as malefactors. Yeah, and there are innocent men who are accused of all kinds of things. And oftentimes we have allowed that pastor's reputation to be trodden over, even though he is innocent. For various reasons, a desire, perhaps for expediency, to throw people under the bus without... Well, is due process even the right word to use in a Christian, you know, in a Christian uh, context? You know, we're not even supposed to be hauling each other before courts, but nevertheless, we have to use that kind of language, right? When, sure, a, sure. when a man is accused of something, he ought to have some kind of due process, and we ought to assume the best in him until there's actual proof otherwise. That a simple accusation of, say, embezzlement by a pastor, right? How, how, do, you, how do you handle that immediately? The mere accusation there destroys his reputation in most cases, and his career's kind of toast after that. And, and I'm going to use that example because everybody, because of the scandals in the news, want to jump to everything. But it, but it could be anything. It could be any kind of accusation. And, and depending on the parish, it could be as simple as he left the porch light on at the front door of the church, so we're going to have to have a meeting about that, right? He's, he's not a good steward of the right. electrical account, that kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, we just and, and it's not just pastors. We, we want to protect everyone's reputation from slander, from gossip and lies. It, we're just simply focusing on the pastor here because the book we're studying is called The Pastor. Well, and that's the, the point is that in different callings, and especially when you're when you have this public office where you are in a fishbowl and it's just there's nothing you can do about it. And, and it's actually Paul presents it as a good thing. Imitate me, right? Remember how I lived among you. I'm sending you Timothy, who will remind you of all the ways in which I lived and walked. There's a twofold purpose to this, the conduct of the pastor. One is for himself, having a clear conscience, but also being able to demonstrate the way that the doctrine or the teaching of a pastor is actually then to be lived out. That actually echoes the sermon and makes it come home even better right? So this, it's actually a good thing that people pay attention to the conduct of the pastor, or it can be a good thing, but it also has dangers like anything. We shouldn't seek to be blameless merely out of fear, you know, because I think that's the way you might be able to interpret that, but it's not really Leia's point. Yes, we have to have a clear conscience so that we can withstand accusations, but we don't do it merely for being able to rebut anyone who comes up against us but rather because this is who we are called to be, so that, as he says, we are that living sermon. Yeah, if, if it just becomes a merely external thing that we use to hold over somebody's head, we actually do become likened to the Pharisees. You know, I, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that man over there. 
And this can take the shape of uh, many things. It, it ought not be the stereotypical examples of alcohol or something like that. I abstain from beer and therefore I am morally superior. It can manifest itself in many ways depending upon where you fall on the church spectrum and, and what group you're trying to impress or try to signal to. Anything can become a platform to expand our haughtiness, right, and to puff a man up. And that's that's the real danger for, for many. There's the hidden secret sins, of course, but there's also a tendency towards braggadocio or being puffed up that we must fight against as well. It's probably why it's good to have a father confess or at least Christian friends who will come along and burst your bubble and bust your chops every now and then. We'll get to what he says about, he, he covers this under self-examination, right? Sure. And, yeah. and how you examine your own gifts so that you don't become conceited. So simply living out the faith as a pastor is going to open you to ridicule from the world and from the devil. Those accusations are going to come. What does it look like? I mean, Leah does mention this, you know, uh, being slandered by the world and attacked by the devil. How does that fit into this context, an attack by the devil? The attack coming from the devil relates to the role of the pastoral office in the life of the congregation. Zelwyn brought up the quote from James a minute ago, those who are teachers will be held to a higher standard because they're in this position of authority. They have both a greater impact or just a God-given impact that no one else has in that congregation. And so the the devil has a, a keen interest in if you can take down the pastor, if you take down the shepherd, then the sheep will fall much easier. Yeah, and this is something that a prospective seminarian should ponder. This is something that a seminarian should ponder. And this is something that the pastor, who currently holds the office, ought to ponder. Right? The qualifications for the office of the ministry that, yes, God calls us, and God equips us, and God lifts us up, and God forgives us, and God is merciful, but this is a solemn task, and it is a difficult task, and it is a warlike task in many ways. And we have to gird ourselves for the battle. And as we're going to see in the next segment, that battle does begin in our private place of prayer. But I would say to the seminarians, would be seminarians, and even pastors who are struggling with this, to think about the Bible quotes that have already been mentioned here in the first segment, and especially those who have not yet been ordained, or excuse me, or have not yet received a call, to pray about this and sincerely meditate upon these qualifications. Because it's not simply a call to be the guy up there that, that people are listening to, but you are putting yourself out there, you're putting your family out there on the firing line. And is that something that you're willing to do? Are you ready to give it all up for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you ready to lay down even your life? Yeah, your, and your reputation. Your reputation, and depending on where you are, even your actual heartbeat. It's a sobering thing. So part of Leah's counsel for pastors is, one, you should strive to live a pure life so that you know these things are shown to be patently false accusations if they do arise. The other thing he says is, you should just get used to this. <laughs> you, yeah. you should just get used to the fact <laughs> right, that right. People, yeah, people are going to talk about you. They're going to charge all kinds of evil motives to you. And that's why I was saying it, it can be paralyzing if you let the things people think or say or do around you, if that becomes the, a limitation on your ministry, well, you're just going to, you're, you're never going to go forward. 
Yeah. And that is difficult because some things are just going to do that. I don't think any man perfectly ever masters this. Eventually, something that somebody says or the way somebody looks or, you know, a, a handshake refused or something like that is going to stick in your craw. But I always go back to the old idiom, like water off a duck's back. All right. So you just got to let it roll and learn to ignore it. I like to get folksy with this kind of that that sweet appellation wisdom right there. <laughs> well, you, you tell me if this is folksy. I, I just want to read this because it, it's just an interesting quote from Leia. He says, "After a while, one gets used to everything, and once one is used to living under the attack of evil tongues, a good conscience will find its right and might." So this is part of that affliction. This is you know to go to use the Luther triad of, of what makes a theologian while well, it's prayer, meditation, and affliction, right? It's in the affliction, in the battle, that you actually see the power of a, a good conscience. You know, it's one thing to talk about, but it's another thing when you actually experience the joy of, of having a clear conscience. But then he goes, he goes on to say, he says, the joy of a faithful pastor is then like that of a unicorn and his rest <laughs> like that of a rock. So you can sleep like a rock and uh, just the unicorn thing is weird. But. Well, our resident German, are unicorns seen as uh, joyful in Germany or something? Do we know? I think what he's getting at is is saying that the, the joy might actually be fleeting, might be as rare as a unicorn, and that our rest may actually be not very restful. I misheard that line there. I thought we were gearing up for like word fitly spoken episode 85, unicorns and other beasts. No, no. I think he's saying, I think he's saying your joy will be like a unicorn because you're going to sleep like a rock that's what it means to rest like a rock yeah yeah yeah. minutes left in the segment if you guys want to debate over what leia means by unicorns by all means i'll let it go (laughs) well maybe on a more profitable note can i just say that when we're talking about afflictions in the office we do have to distinguish between what is a genuine affliction on behalf of the office and what is merely an affliction because we might actually try to elevate what is our own opinion or our own way of doing things and think that that's the way that everything should be done. You know what I mean? That sometimes we might perceive that we are under attack when it's really for something that really doesn't make all that much of a difference. Sure. Sure. And yeah, there's there's something to be said about picking your battles too. Right. Which hills you're going to die on, that kind of thing. Absolutely. This whole question, the thing that got us started on this whole thing is just this, is... It's kind of the the, the question is, I, I think, why spend time thinking about the conduct of the pastor? And I would just reemphasize a point. We've been talking about the negative effects of slander or gossip about the pastor. But think about some of the things that Paul says when he talks about coming to the Corinthians. He says, then we'll see, or you'll see that I'm not just all talk. I'm <laughs> This is a big paraphrase, okay? But you'll see that it's not just all talk but there will be a demonstration of power. You know, I don't think he means I'm going to do miraculous signs, but he's going to say, you're going to see that what I say to you in the epistles, I actually also carry out in how I live, how I act, how I deal with different situations. And that's actually really an important part of the pastoral ministry, right? Like you said, Willie, you're not just in the pulpit preaching for 10, 15, 20 minutes on Sunday morning, and then you disappear. If that's the extent of it, then anybody could do that, right? But people are actually looking for what did he say? What did he say? And does it actually, do I actually see it in his life? And when that happens, then it becomes a really powerful thing because then they can say, oh, this is why a clear conscience matters. 
you know, the forgiveness of sins. This is why it really matters. I can see it in someone's life. Amen. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. And welcome back, Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, David Apple, talking Leah's the pastor, specifically the private life of the pastor. So in the introduction, we unpacked why we're even talking about this again, why it's important, and the different approach that Leah takes as far as introducing the subject. So now we'll get into the actual nuts and bolts of everything, the the private conduct of a pastor, what should his private time look like. Now, this is going to come across a little bit differently today, simply because in today's educational model, we stress, and perhaps even to a fault, the necessity for family time, vacation time, downtime. Gerberding stresses that too, and it is a good thing. We do have to make time for family and recreation and that sort of thing, and a time and provision for rest. See the whole Sabbath day episode if you want to learn more about resting. But Leah is more concerned, though, about the practices that a pastor cultivates, shall we say, spiritually? Is that a safe enough word to use? Devotionally, how he should incorporate such things into into his private time. So we won't be discussing a lot of things about the need for six weeks of vacation and the need to be home for dinner at the same hour every night or something like that. If you can't tell, I'm I'm joking about that. No pastor... (laughs) Right, exactly. No pastor is going to be able to make either of those things work, most likely. You're just going to miss some meals. You're going to miss some things, such as the sacrifice that the pastor makes for his flock. But nevertheless, that said, what should a pastor be doing in general in his private time? And Leah begins with Bible reading and meditation. Guys, what do you think about that? I think with the Bible reading, and I know this is something that we've emphasized many times before on this podcast, Leah does a nice job of saying that the intense study of a pastor, like the intense exegetical study, which is something that he should be doing, is not the same as what he's talking about here. He's talking about that kind of cursory reading the Bible just for the sake of reading the Bible. And I think as pastors, we can very often fall into thinking that because we have exegeted a passage, because we have done the research, because we have translated it, that therefore we have, you know, this is all that we really need to do. Whereas 
that kind of familiarity that can only really come with being in the scriptures diligently every day and for no with no particular yeah. agenda in mind, I guess would be one way of putting right. it, is really going to be what's beneficial to the soul. I mean, the way I would put it, Zelwyn, is do you read the Bible for purposes other than I need to preach on this text or I'm leading a Bible class on this book? You know, are, is the pastor cultivating a, what we would call a devotional life that actually reads God's word for no particular reason except that it's God's word? <laughs> you know, right. I don't have to teach on this, but I need it for myself. Well, yeah, and, and there it is. There, there, There's the key. It's not for no particular reason. It's like you said, because I need it for myself. Look, you might skip breakfast, but most of you aren't going to skip lunch, and you're certainly not going to skip dinner if you can avoid it. You're going to eat something throughout the day. You need nourishment as a human being. You need food and water. And what is the Word of God but bread for the soul? Spiritual eating and drinking uh, comes about. I mean, it's a it's a different kind of eating and drinking in the sacrament, but, you know, it's both and, right? So you're receiving that in the mouth, but there is a spiritual eating and drinking that comes from reading and meditating upon the Word of God. You need that nourishment. It's what Jesus used in his great temptation in the wilderness. You cannot live by bread alone. It's true. You will wither away and die if you are not in that Word. I don't know why I'm coming across so stark, but uh, there it is. <laughs> he even goes on to to say, uh, and this is, I think this is typical of Leah, especially in this section, in this chapter where he's going to address almost every aspect of the pastor's life, what he wears, what how he eats at home, how he decorates his house. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he gets to everything, doesn't he? <laughs> you know? Yeah, the second part of yeah, the, the next episode we do on this is going to be awkward for everybody. <laughs> but here with Bible reading, here's my point with Bible reading. He goes, he has this great paragraph where he talks about how you know, people who protest against having like a Bible reading plan and say that that somehow interferes with their Christian freedom, he has some great things to say. And we'll just say, say it this way. He doesn't agree with that. He thinks having a Bible reading plan has, has nothing to do with impinging someone's freedom. Yeah, it's just a matter of are we actually going to do it or are we just yeah. going to give in to our own self-indulgent yeah. ways? And again, it, it is a discipline. It's something that you have to cultivate, and you're going to fail at it. Not making an excuse, but you will fail. You're going to wake up one morning and just not feel like it, or you're going to have a legitimate excuse. You've got to go to the hospital. You have to do something. You have to attend to your child or, or spouse or something like that. But you have to carve out time to make this work. And it's best if you're not trying to just shove it in between everything else. Well, I've got a 10-minute gap here. Let me see if I can get Habakkuk knocked out. But you're just going to be thinking about the next activity in that case. Right. He he doesn't mention a time. I don't know if you guys noticed that. He he says you need to have you need to be doing this and you should have a plan for, you know, I want to get through this section of the Bible in this month or something like that. But he doesn't say you need to be doing this in the mornings and in the evenings. I think it's assumed, don't you think? Right. Well, there, yeah, there's going to be morning and evening prayer. And I also think that he assumes you'll be reading the Bible in the day because candles are expensive. And we're talking about Leah's <laughs> time there. So you're going to yeah. need a little bit of daylight to make that work for any, you know, kind of long reading. Maybe his point is less the what and just the how. He might be just less concerned with what you're actually reading as long as you're doing it. And as long as you're actually doing it, 
even if you only read a relatively small amount in comparison with someone else, that's still going to be a profit for the soul. The real point, and maybe this is what will kind of drive us forward into talking about meditation, is to be mindful about it, to not just do it distractedly or in a hurry or I'm doing this. Okay, I got that out of the way. Now I can get on to what I really need to do. Right. Yeah. Reading it, you know, mindfully. I would say intentionally, but that's such a loaded term today. Mindfully. It's very good. Yeah. So that moves us into the subject of meditation. And we've touched on this in a couple of previous episodes. Meditation is a very tricky word and one we have to be careful with because of that. There's Eastern religious associations with it and, and hippies and that kind of thing. It's not really what we're talking about here. But even even the concept of Christian meditation, we need to be careful with uh, because there's a healthy way and a not healthy way to do it. And Leia's way is going to be a little bit different from what we're used to, and it's worth it's worth discussing. So how does Leia approach meditation? He references something that just the title of it might strike us as odd. He references a a practice called the ladder of devotion or the ladder of heaven. And he's getting this, this is not his own pattern for meditation, but he's getting this from another author who, and this is in the section where he says, you know, in addition to the Bible, don't forget these other human authors who are, who are helpful for the pastor. And and we could, we'll talk about some of those guys in a minute, but he talks about this way, this, this pattern, I guess, of reflecting on meditating on what you're reading. I, I don't know when I when I read what he's saying, he's basically just saying, ask yourself a bunch of questions so that you don't too quickly pass over what you're reading. That mindfulness aspect and by asking yourself questions, I think is a very helpful thing. Because even some of the other authors that I've read on, you know, on the question of what Christian meditation looks like will will really offer up a very similar kind of approach. Just to really say, like, what is this actually saying? Who is, you know, being spoken to? Who is receiving? Who is the one speaking? What does this mean? You know, these kinds of deep questions to really focus on what it is that's actually before us. But it's actually not the first step that he takes, David. What's the, the first step that he starts on this ladder? Well, he calls the inner prayer of the heart. Is that what you mean? Sort of. I mean, the the very first step that he takes is when you take up a passage and then you actually repeat the words to yourself. What I made note of is what you had already mentioned, where you're asking who is talking to whom and what is being said. And I mean, kind of basic exeget, what we would say is kind of basic exegetical questions. This is page 62, 3A, in his little outline here. He says, I take up a well-known passage, the verse of a hymn, a piece of the catechism of prayer, etc. I do not let a single word pass by, but I think about and take to heart each one after the other. And then he says, in order to penetrate ever deeper and more thoroughly into the meaning and understanding of the words I took up, I repeat them and think about them slowly with devotional attention several times. I also divide the verse into certain questions. Zellan, I can tell you're uncomfortable here reading these words of Leia. <laughs> well, it's not so much that I'm uncomfortable. It's just it's definitely a different practice than what we're used to. This is a, I mean, and understand me very carefully here. This is a somewhat, I guess you would call it a mystical practice to actually focus and to delve on each of the words themselves and to kind of repeat them over and over again in order to 
then further onto into further devotion. That doesn't mean that it's a bad thing. I think every time we hear the word mystical, that we are saying that it's automatically a bad thing. I'm just saying this kind of approach is something definitely different from what we might actually encounter today. It's one that might be a little bit helpful for us today as it becomes so difficult to concentrate on reading a text and reading it carefully and mindfully. Sure. Now, just the med- you know the repeating one word over and over, oh, okay, meh, I don't know. But if we're just <laughs> reading slowly and even going back and rereading, or let's say we come back to the same section of Scripture a couple different times and really pay careful attention to each individual word, I do think has merit. Because sure. if we just read through quickly, it just becomes that. You won't retain anything. It's It's like prayer, too. When we use memorized prayer, that's good, but it so easily becomes just a form that we rush through really quick so we can get to the ham you know, or we can get to the meal or whatever. So it can become just simply, well, I have to say prayers in the morning, so I'm going to say the morning prayer and be done with it. Or even the Lord's Prayer will do the same thing, get through it. And we know it, and that's good, but we do need to slow down every now and then and remember what we're saying and meditate on those words. Our Father who art in heaven, what does our Father signify? What does that mean for us? Those sorts of things. So there is wisdom there, and we do have to slow down with Scripture. We're so used to consuming media so fast. And some of you might be listening to this podcast at one and a half or two and a half speed. I know you cool kids like to do that because you got to get all your podcasts in on it's your commute. Necessary. Right. It's necessary for some people, but but we're just a podcast. We are but simple podcasters tending to our podcast. When it comes to the Word of God, fast forward through us, but slow down for God's Word. Please don't take me the wrong way. I'm not saying that, you know, by putting that kind of a label to it, that means, oh, this is bad. We can't do this. I'm just saying this is definitely something that calls us to be mindful by doing something that would be a little bit out of our, our mainstream way of thinking it. I mean, when you say mysticism, that's kind of like a, a bad word, right? So that's a right. Uh, people are going to hear that. Okay, that's bad. But it is, maybe we could put it this way. It's word-centered mysticism. So right. he's not saying read a Bible passage and then just, you know, think about it and let your let your mind wander and whatever, examine your feelings and your thoughts about about this. He's actually just repeating Bible words over and over again. Well, it's not like you're expecting a mystical experience out of it either, as far as we know. Yeah. So yeah. all that said, though, and this question is for you in particular, Zelwyn, with something like Ladder of Devotion or <laughs> Meditation or Repetition, is Leia a pietist? <laughs> Can you insert like some fancy sound effects here? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, exactly. I know we've talked about this before. On this is that, yeah, he's a pietist or just, yeah, let, let me let me gather my thoughts. That's just, a, <laughs> I'm focusing my thoughts here. If you're going to use the word pietist to mean a baby eater who is seeking <laughs> the destruction of the church, then no. But if you're going to use pietist to mean someone who is deeply interested in the inner life, someone who is seeking to cultivate devotion, then yes. I know that's kind of a yes, but really no kind of answer. But Short answer, yes, if, long answer, no, with a but, right? Yeah, Is that what you're basically, <laughs> basically. 
it just all depends on what you mean by pietist. So if you're using it as a term of abuse, then I'm going to say no. But if you're going to try to actually understand it in the right way, then yeah, there are certain pietistic influences at work on him. It's a term, and we've talked about it, just kind of used as a pejorative all the time. But he gets thrown around. It gets thrown at Leia. It gets thrown at Walther. It gets thrown at pretty much anybody with any semblance of piety in the current year. It's a word that you've used so much it almost has no meaning. And it's so particular to the Lutheran vocabulary that outside of it, it really doesn't help us too much. It's just been overused, and it's lost some of its power because of that. Yeah. And if you, I mean, if you look at some of the the men who he recommends, the devotional writers who he recommends, these are, these are guys who I, the only one that I knew before reading this was Philip Nikolai, who we know from some of the hymns in our hymnal. But the other guys who he mentions, Mayfart and who's the other one? Scriver. I, I don't recognize these ones. I don't know if either of you guys have any. Yeah, Zelwyn, do you have any, any insight on these guys? Well, here's my question with this this question about whether Leia is a pietist or not. The guys who he's reading and who he recommends as good reads, what's their deal? <laughs> Are they pietists? Is he recommending pietists? And if you recommend a pietist, yeah. So now we're to the no true Scotsman fallacy, yeah. right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, because these guys are well known for their devotional works. But this is reference to a body of devotional literature, mostly within Lutheranism, that we no longer really have any access to because, I mean, I can kind of read German. I know that some of us on this podcast can, but vast majority of us in the Missouri Synod today no longer speak or read German. And because of that, these works have really passed out of use. And even by Leia's day, they weren't exercising any kind of real influence either he's kind of yeah. going back to the to the oldie goldies yeah you're right you're right he has this note about how be careful that you don't become so enamored just with the old way of talking that right. you try to imitate it or don't just reject it because it has an old way of talking when you're reading human devotional author and that's a really good piece of advice though it really is but just maybe just to talk about these guys super briefly here Mayfart, who you mentioned, is actually mo mostly known for being a hymn writer. He wrote Jerusalem, O City, o City Fair and High, which is in our hymnal. You also have mention of Scriver, who was well known for his work that was called Assailant Shots or Soul Treasury, when he was really emphasizing an approach which talked about the soul reaching up and being led towards God. So it's this kind of very warm kind of, I guess you could call it pietistic literature, but again, that's such an abusive term that way we sure. use it. You also have other guys from that era, well, and before, like Arndt, for example, who wrote True Christianity, a book which was like on Bunyan levels of popularity. Everybody had Arndt in their library kind of a thing. Paul Gerhardt also used his prayer books. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, influence going on here. Rombach is mentioned within the footnotes. He was well known as a preacher. His book of sermons was produced in the Missouri Synod in the very early days. Listeners might be more familiar with Stark and his prayer book, which is produced, I think there's a most recent edition produced by CPH, well known for his prayers. Leah also mentions Lewis Bailey and his practice of piety. He is actually an Anglican, which I think is something that we should maybe talk about 
he was well known because the book was so popular and so well received for talking about what it means to be pious. I thought that was very interesting that he references an English author. Well, to be fair, in those days, almost all of the devotional literature at a certain point was coming out of England. And you really cannot underemphasize the influence that the Puritans had and that whole generation had even on the continent as their works were being translated into German and into mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. That whole movement kind of affects the way that every denomination was moving on the continent. Well, well. and then even a confessional Lutheran like Leia is not afraid to judiciously use these books. Right. Which is, I, I think, would get him just absolutely destroyed by the blogs and the social media today. <laughs> I've actually read Bailey's work because I was interested in it, and I you know, was researching this period for my STM work. It does deserve its reputation. I mean, it's very well written. There's obviously some things that we can't accept as Lutherans, but Leia is certainly going to understand that. You know, yeah. He's not going to uncritically recommend something. It's just... What he had to say that could be appropriated was something that Leia feels is worthwhile to the pastor of his day. Well, folks, we got to take another break, so we'll be right back with more Word Fitly. said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, and David Apple talking Leia's the Pastor. So we just got through discussing Bible reading and began a discussion on meditation and talked about pietism again, as will happen. So continuing on with the meditation theme, we come into the subject of self-examination. So we move from meditation on the Word to something of a meditation upon the state of your soul. Now, we want to say at the outset that, of course, our assurance is found in the finished work of Christ. Our hope is found outside of us insofar as Jesus Christ is the object of our faith. Nevertheless, Christ and the Holy Spirit dwell within us, but also dwelling within us is that old Adam. And introspection in and of itself, according to Leah, is not a bad thing. It is good to examine your life regularly to see what's going on and then seek remedy where it is to be found. We've moved away from the notion of introspection because we've made it into kind of a boogeyman too, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that's fair. Any kind of introspection is going to lead to 
the despairing soul or the self-righteous kind of Pharisee. That's that's usually the way it's presented. But Leah does not seem to have that concern. No, he. I think he sees this self-examination as being a, a fruit of reading the Bible. So the more you read the Bible, if you're doing, if you are regularly meditating on God's word, you, we might put it this way, you're going to naturally then reflect on the state of your own life, right? You're going to be reading, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it's it's basically saying like the author of Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active and cuts and divides the bone and the marrow, right? So if you're reading this stuff and you have God's word and you, you know, you go around with the light of his word in your mind and in your heart, it's going to produce this reflection in you. And that's a good thing because then you are, you're being conscious of your actions. You're saying, does my life correspond to the things I read, the things that God commands me to do? Or are there things that I say and do and think that need to change? Leah specifically says that resistance to doing this kind of introspection to actually heeding, I guess you could say the words of Paul himself, you know, to examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith, really comes out of an inflated self-importance. We are fearful of what we might find, so to speak, if we actually sit down and really examine what it is that's going on in our lives. Because, I mean, that that means asking all the hard questions, the questions that we don't like facing in ourselves. Yeah. What would be an example of that? Well, I mean, Leia talks about how every pastor has this idea of himself as being this outstanding teacher, for example, or a great preacher or or anything like this, this kind of inflated estimation of our own abilities and, and, and maybe even an inflated estimation of our own faith, the, the fruits of faith in our life. And so to ask ourselves questions like, Am I really teaching the way that God would have me be teaching? Am I doing this in an effective way? Am I, or, or when it comes to matters of the fruits of faith, am I actually doing things consistent with what I'm preaching? You know, it's kind of really like a, a sermon to yourself. I think that's a very good way to put it, a sermon to yourself. He talks about one, the benefits. I expected him to say, you should examine your soul. You should go through this process of self-examination for the sake of confession. You know, that's, I think that's usually still the place where we would say, yeah, self-examination, that's good. That's important so that you can make a good confession and then receive the absolution. But he doesn't make any mention of doing this for confession's sake. Although I, you know, I'm not going to say that Leah was <laughs> against private confession. I think that'd be wrong. But it's interesting, don't you think, that, that that isn't brought up. The value is simply in, is for the sake of your own soul and for the carrying out of your office. That's always his focus. That's always what he's coming back to. And so one of the things he says is, when you do this, one of the effects is that you will be humble, right? It will produce humility in you because you won't suffer from, like Zellin said, this false notion of your own gifts and abilities or your own, you know, your own faith even. I think the the question of, you know, why not confession? Because I don't think that's really what he's striving for. Right. Meditation is not so much a question of, okay, I need to reflect on all of my own faults. Meditation can also be what fruits are at work. 
So it's not simply seeking out sin. It's really just taking an honest appraisal of yourself in light of the word of God. That's not going to save us, of course, but it's just a matter of, you know, what is it that God is doing in me? What is it that, you know, I have failed at? What is it that God is actually, you know, truly good in me, but not inflating that beyond what I think it actually is, right? If I've been given the gift of teaching, I should recognize that as a good gift of God and something that I've been given to do, but I should not take it beyond its bounds, you know, or or at least I should recognize where I fail in it and then actually strive to do better. Well, it's a case of, I mean, with anything, if you're going to do jujitsu, right? You're going to have to evaluate your technique and your approach and what you're going to do. If you're going to be a good marksman, you're going to have to shoot, but you're also going to have to learn the weapon, learn how your sights work, regulate them, learn what your body's doing, not just your fingers, but everything in order to increase your accuracy, to increase your skill. If you're an artist and making a sculpture, the first thing you carve out is not going to be Raphael's David or something like that. Everything takes discipline and takes reflection, and that ought not scare us off. We are God's handiwork, and God will mold us into what he wants us to be. In the meantime, we are examining ourselves and and seeking to improve. And I also want to make a correction. I meant to say Donatello's David. So I (laughs) just want to save the emails. That's right. Let's just hold off on the emails. It was Donatello's. Well, I I think your your point besides the Donatello thing is actually quite on point here that, you know, if I am shooting at a target and I recognize that the shot is off, I don't just kind of say, you know, mea culpa and then keep shooting off on the target. I, (laughs) I, I seek what it is that God would have me do so that I could actually improve, that I could actually do it better. Not and again and this and this is what always is so frustrating because we always think of this in terms of like if I'm striving to do better I'm somehow seeking to justify myself. That's not what <laughs> that's not what Leah is talking about. He's really just talking about seeking the good gifts of God. Because we're not saying pray and that God's going to go. You need to shoot with the pad of your index finger, not the distal joint. <laughs> not what we're saying here. Pull the trigger rather with that. So let's put it into a stark example. You're a wife beater. You claim to be a Christian, but you're beating your wife. All right, are you... When did you stop? (laughs) Right. Ought you stop? Ought you as a Christian not say, Lord, I need to stop doing this? If you're a drunkard and you're spending every spare dime you have, or every dime, we'll say, on booze and not feeding your family, claiming to be a Christian, ought you not examine yourself in light of the law of God and seek to amend your ways if indeed you are a Christian? Endowed with the Holy Spirit? Are you seeking to justify yourself? Or are you seeking to lead a life that is better because it is in accord with the Word of God? Use your reason, use your Christian senses, and just listen to the Word. Don't don't try to overthink this. Okay, and we have to use examples like this because they're so stark, but should also be so obvious. Are you a better Christian because you're a sinner? Are you going to continue to sin that grace may abound, oh drunkard, oh wife beater, okay, oh man who wastes his money in reckless living? Is that the message of the prodigal son? Does the prodigal son not introspect and see his error and turn from it and run back to the embrace of his father? Is that not what the scripture clearly says? 
Are we going to be so weak-minded and weak-willed that we just wilt and dry up like the pig husks that the prodigal son wanted to eat? Is that what you are? No, you know better than this. And so stop listening to people who, who equivocate and try to make the scripture to this complicated mess, and, and it's no different from some kind of cure album where you're just feeling bad and you want to be miserable with everybody else and you think that's the Christian life. It's not. It's so much better than that. And it's so much clearer and so pure when you can just drink of that water and be sated, quite frankly. So, sorry, guys. So, yeah. yeah. So, so. <laughs> so what am I supposed to say after that, Willie? <laughs> Dilly, Dilly? I don't know. Let me try. So part of the value of self-examination, and this is really good for knowledge of sin and faults, but also knowledge of a true knowledge of your gifts, is you get an accurate picture of yourself. Right. So the, the prodigal son has to come to himself and say, look at, look at what I've become. Right. And that is a necessary part of, of the journey. And so for the pastor to have a, an accurate picture of himself, because it is, it's very easy to gloss over our own faults or to magnify whatever gifts we have. If they're small, we think that they're the greatest things. I think Leah's right on in in how he says every pastor thinks he's a great teacher and he asks his wife and she says so too. So it must be true. <laughs> and so then you find, you know, you say, well, how come my congregation is not just really thriving? Well, it, it default surely can't be in me. It must be in them. When you don't have an accurate picture of yourself, you also lose sight of your work and you lose sight of your congregation. You lose sight of everything. And so the, the necessity of self-examination can't be, I, I don't think it can be, well, it can be overemphasized, but that's not the danger that of our times, right? The danger of our times is to say, well, that's just introspection. Don't do that. There's no good in that. That's an excellent point, though. We shouldn't be afraid to accurately assess the state of our souls. We shouldn't. I mean, this is a biblical thing, like I said with Paul calling on us to examine ourselves to see whether we are still in the faith. This is a biblical thing in that it's not fruit checking or whatever kind of pejorative you want to throw at it. It really is just a question of what is God doing in my life? And because I want to do what he wants me to do, how can I, with the help of God, do these things? Yeah. yeah. And we'll, you know, we'll even say here, look, this comes right in, in the section where he's talking about meditating on the word. So it's never, it's never devoid of God's word, right? That's what I tried to say at the beginning. The impulse to examine your own life comes from reading God's word and seeing what his word says, and then saying, is that what, what I am? Is that what I'm doing? Is that what I see in myself? Yeah. So we don't want to confuse it with an emotional state. We don't want to confuse it with an emotional assessment of our own person, because that's what we're prone to. We really just want to say, this is what the word says. And is this something that I can say also about myself? Yeah, right. Willie, did you use yourself up there or what? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just, he's on fire. I'm just waiting, you know, uh, you know, to get calls from AA and everyone else, you know. We're talking about this, and we always seem to we have to be clarifying as we should, but we're also always apologizing. So if, if I make a reference to some kind of addiction, I've insulted some victim class, I've done this. And I tell you, we're in a bad way. We ought to just be like what we're doing here. 
just be plain about it. Leia doesn't have to deal with a lot of the different groups and things that that we do in our pluralistic society. And I just believe that we must stop overcomplicating these sorts of things. The, what we're talking about with Leia should not be foreign to the Christian. And I don't think it is to the simple Christian. And I mean that in the best way, that the Christian who is just a sincere believer in the Word, faithfully attending the service, and that sort of thing. I think that Christians at a base level do understand this. And I think most pastors do understand this. But there is a spirit out there that absolutely wants to reject this, and we need to reject that spirit. But I don't mean that in a Pentecostal way. I mean spirit is an attitude. See, constantly having to just backtrack because of yeah, labels right. and offensive. It's, it's, it's like impossible to have a conversation anymore because of this stuff. And it's just become so silly. You know you're a sinner. Acknowledge that. Go find forgiveness in the Lord, in His Word and in His sacraments. That's where you go. But remember that the Lord is making you into something. And what does he say about temptation? What does Paul tell us? The Lord will not tempt you beyond what you are able to bear. Now, there is the reference where Paul says that he's, you know, pressed beyond what he can handle. But again, that's Paul's particular context there. God has promised that he would provide that way of escape. And the work of sanctification that happens within the Christian, that is wrought by the Holy Spirit, is often one step forward and two steps back. But just because we suffer setback and failure doesn't mean that we ignore the Christian advice that Leah is giving us here, which is nothing short and nothing other than the advice of the Scriptures. Just know that the Christian life, brothers, is a difficult one, and it is paved with sorrow. But the joys that we will receive in the end are nothing that compare to those pains that we suffer here. It's like, the, it's like what we say all the time, God saves real sinners. Absolutely, amen to that too. But God balms real sorrows as well, just as he forgives only real sinners. God only lifts up the truly sorrowful, the contrite, the one whose conscience is really pricked. And the one who does suffer loss in this life, God truly and actually will make that right, just like he did for Job so long ago. You can't just make this some kind of psychological play, you know, within yourself all the time. These are actual spiritual realities happening, and God lifts us up, and we can put the burden on God, and we have brothers and sisters in the faith that we can share these burdens with. You are not a lonely Christian, and if I hope it makes you feel better, you're not that special either, and that's a good thing, because we all sin, and we (laughs) all suffer, and we all go through this Christian life together as brothers in the faith. We can put it in in meme form here, too, because, you know, attention spans and whatnot. Leia puts it this way. He says, he who is willing to be led to the truth finds a fortune. If you know the truth about yourself, then you can, you recognize who you are and you know, okay, here's where I need to improve. Here's what I need to change. But if you never come to that truth, then yeah, you're just, <laughs> you're just, you just keep firing the gun. I like that analogy. <laughs> right. You just keep firing, you know. And then you yell at the target. How, why is it out of place? <laughs> right. Why do I never win gold? And, and here's a case where we could probably advocate for a father confessor, especially for pastors, someone that you can confess to, who will also admonish you. That's part of the confession and absolution process. There is instruction there. So there are many practical ways in which we could put this into place. It, it shouldn't just be only, you know, your personal introspection, but to go to your confessor, to go to a a pastor, and uh, not only receive the absolution, but also 
relieve the burden by actually confessing your sins than listening to the sound advice of that pastor. So we have just a couple minutes left here. That's probably enough about self-examination for now. Leah talks about the place of prayer for the pastor. So let's, let's wrap up with a couple minutes about prayer. The prayer of the heart he mentions in passing. And then he, talk, he spends especially a while talking about intercessory prayer, that the pastor especially is going to be invo- involved in praying for the members of his congregation. He kind of mentions this guy, Martin Boers. Am I saying that right? I th- Yeah, Mar- no, Martin Boos. And he's, he's got some great kind of stories about praying all over the countryside. Wherever he goes, he finds a place. I've laid here and prayed. I've laid there and prayed. He just kind of uses that as a an exhortation for the pastor to never forget the power of intercessory prayer, which is an easy temptation, right? You think, well, the real effect of my office is in the things I say to people, but prayer is i'm not no one no one else hears my prayers except for god <laughs> and and so it's easy to overlook the the importance of intercessory prayer i think it's also interesting when he's talking about where to pray yes. which is really an emphasis on how frequent we ought to pray pray without ceasing kind of a thing but he speaks about what he calls the ambulatory prayer or the walking prayer Of course, you know, he's walking to go about his pastoral business. We might translate this into, you know, driving about town or something like that. Yeah, I think so. And he he says this is an excellent time to be engaged in prayer. And I know, at least from my own experience, and maybe, you know, speaking of my own failings, if you want to put it that way, um, I know I'm not always thinking about those kind of things when I'm driving here, there, and everywhere. But that is something that is certainly a wonderful thing to do as a part of carrying out our pastoral ministry. Because, I mean, like me, I I spend a tremendous amount of time in the vehicle during the week. That would be an excellent time for many of these things that Leah is talking about. And it's, I mean, it's perfectly fitting too, right? You're going to visit this guy in the hospital or, you know, this widow at home. Well, instead of listening to well, you should always listen to word fitly, but instead of listening to something else, <laughs> you can uh, you can use that time to pray. Right, right. And the, the other place he mentions is he he. It's interesting because he he know, he mentions this already back in his day. The loss of the sacristy as a place of prayer. You know, sure. he says every every sacristy should have a a pray do, and a, I think he mentions an altar. But he says since that's not possible any longer. The pastor's study needs these things. And I just find that interesting because my my sacristy is basically like it's the alternate way to get into the sanctuary. And so there's so many people going in and out of my sacristy that to have a moment of silence before the service is is nearly impossible. Yeah, we don't even actually have a true working sacristy here. You can see the vestiges of what it was, you know, 100 years ago. We do have a private chapel, though with altar that serves quite well, a kneeler and stuff in the in the office. Zelman, you're the circuit rider. What, do you have any of those provisions available to you? The only one that I actually have would be in the one further south where I have a separate room kind of in the back and off to the side that I, I guess would serve as a sacristy. Otherwise, the one the other church building that I have is simply basically one room, for the lack of a better way of describing it. The other places that I served, I don't actually have a building. So 
yeah, I don't really have a sacristy to speak of. All right, guys. So any final words on Leia with prayer before we wrap up? I would just really highlight his emphasis on just praying frequently, praying all the time, being engaged in the work of prayer as part of the pastoral office, because that really is something that we are called to do as pastors in particular. I mean, Christians in general, but pastors in particular, because this is what God would have us do just as Jesus himself is interceding on our behalf. He calls it an unconquerable urge of the heart of the true pastor. If that's not the case, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief would be an appropriate thing there. All right, that's going to wrap us up. Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, David, thank you so much for being on again. We'll have you back on soon. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. God love you, and God bless. Meditation brings many riches to the soul, and a pastor would often save the trouble of finding new things if he would not despise to live in meditation for his own sake. He would find out that godliness is good for all things, also for the holy office. The one who considers in meditation the height and breadth, the length and depth of divine love, he will certainly not have any lack or thoughts for his sermon.